I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Catherine Hall, is a researcher at Harvard Medical School's program in placebo studies and the therapeutic encounter. After earning her PhD at Harvard in microbiology and molecular genetics, she spent 10 years in the biotech industry, first at Wyeth and then at Millennium Pharmaceuticals, where she became an associate director of drug development. In 2014, she completed a master's in public health from Harvard at the School of Public Health. And in 2015, she published a landmark paper identifying a genetic marker for placebo responders. Her research has been the focus of numerous articles, including features in Science, The Atlantic, The Economist, and Discover magazines. She's the author of the book, Placebos, recently published as part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series. So Dr. Hall, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. So uh, the subject of placebos and the placebo effect have been in the news pretty frequently in recent years, and yet it can be an elusive, confusing subject. So I applaud your writing placebos, a very clear and concise rendering of uh, much needed for this topic. Uh, but before we, we launch in, tell us a bit about what drew you to the subject. And while you're doing that, also maybe a little bit about the program in placebo studies at Harvard. Yes, yeah, so I worked for many years in the pharmaceutical industry, and I was really struck by how many drugs were failing um, to beat placebos in clinical trials. And this was after considerable months of research and really thorough identification of a target, assuring that the small molecule, if it was a small molecule, was safe and would actually get to its target and, you know, doing small um, phase one trials to make sure it was safe and also doing small, even small phase two trials that weren't necessarily small to make sure that there was some efficacy. And then, you know, then you do the, the pivotal trial and boom, you fail to, to beat um, the placebo. It seemed that we were missing something. And so when I ended up having myself a condition that required me to take a lot of medication that I hoped would work and it didn't work, I ended up going to acupuncture. And lo and behold, um, acupuncture was the thing that um, cured my um, carpal tunnels pain really almost permanently. I haven't had that problem ever since I had those series of acupuncture treatments. And I'm really, I was really struck by that. At first I thought, oh, acupuncture must be just placebo. And I kind of had this personal experience of what may or may not have been a placebo effect. And I was really curious, like, what is this? How does this work? Um, and how is it impacting us? And as I got to learn more about placebos, I was deeply fascinated, not just by, you know, their role in, in treatment and, and in the clinic, but also um, their role in history um, throughout time and their role in clinical trials. Yeah, so it's interesting when you use the phrase just a placebo, which I think is the way most people would say it, I, I would think at, at this point you would say it's a placebo. It's not just a placebo. It's a really, it's a really, because if the placebo has actual efficacy, it's not just a placeholder. It's not just an illusion. Yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't always work for everyone. And there is, there is kind of an inherent um, stigma and kind of minimizing of the placebo effect. So I guess I've learned to say just a placebo and, and here it is echoed right from me. And, and it's interesting that you point that out. Let me t tell you a little bit about my own background with this subject. I'm a prescribing psychologist. I was the fourth 
prescribing psychologists to get licensed for that in New Mexico. New Mexico was the first state in the country to allow psychologists to do further training. And in the training, I learned that for antidepressants, and this would be for the double-blind you know, clinical trials, which usually would be done with patients that had not been on, on antidepressants before, you know, this is for the initial approval of the antidepressant, that uh, 50% of the patients responded to the drug and 40% responded to the placebo. I said, what? How, how can that be? And, and that sort of started me on the road to learning more and more about what placebos are and uh, it's, it's, it is a really fascinating subject. Okay, so what then is a placebo and what qualifies as, as a placebo effect? How do, how do those th two things differ? And it would be helpful to have some uh, examples. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what's really helpful um, to think of, to kind of understand placebos and what they are is to think of an active treatment. So whether it's a, a pill, a capsule, or think of an injection or a surgery and remove the active ingredient in all of those. So remove the, you know, the ibuprofen and the ibuprofen pill or remove the, the actual target organ that you're gonna work on in a surgery, remove the, um, the vaccine, the mRNA, um, and just leave the saline. Um, and so just giving people the vehicle right, the carrier, whether it's the pill, the capsule, or the injection, shouldn't have the effect because what you're actually doing is you're giving a drug by giving a pill, giving a, you know, injection, doing a surgery, um, you're giving an intervention. So removing the active element, um, you create a placebo, and by administering that inert treatment, you are giving a placebo treatment. And, and yet it seems to work compared to nothing. Yeah, and it's hard to to figure what what does nothing really look like, right? Because it's it's kind of like as soon as you start to look, things start to change. And certainly, if people are aware that you're looking, they start to change. And if they have to come in, let's say you're doing a clinical trial and you're, you're like, I'm going to have a no treatment arm, and but I want to study the patients, and so you're going to ask them to come in. They're going to talk to a physician about their illness, but they're not going to get a treatment that in and of itself is an intervention, right? And so it's really hard to do nothing. We are always doing something. Right, you'd have to have a comparison group with the, with the, the group that does get actually nothing, right? So they just go about having their lives as usual and don't get any intervention or any contact at all with the researchers. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that you say that because I decided when I started to write the book um, that I wanted to be in a clinical trial to have the experience. So I thought, okay, what trial can I sign up for? And I have a, you know, a bit of insomnia. Um, and so I called up, I, you know, set up the interview. Um, it was set up for next Wednesday to see if I could get into this clinical trial. I was so excited. And as I was driving to work the day before, I thought, well, when I get good sleep, I'm going to be able to do. And I listed in my head, I was in traffic. So I was thinking this through all the things I was going to do. And I said, you know, I'm even going to be, I'm going to call my brother or sister. I'm going to be more in touch with my family, a long list of things. And I thought to myself, why don't I just call my brother now? I'm sitting in traffic. Why don't I? So I called him. He was like, are you okay? Because <laughs> I never call. But it was funny because I started to have the behaviors of somebody in my head who was well rested. And so just the act of signing up for that clinical trial had me thinking about 
my insomnia had me kind of changing my behaviors around it and I became very hopeful. Ironically, I didn't get, I didn't make it into the trial. I had one of the exclusion factors, but I never kind of went back. I, I started to go forward to think I need to pay attention to this. And it, it, just the simple act of paying attention to your illness or your condition can actually change it. And it did so for me. So being in the comparison group, it, just knowing that you're in a comparison group has an effect. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that, that's related, I think, to the Hawthorne effect, which I think came out of industrial psychology, where workers in a factory improved the performance regardless of the intervention. You could raise the lights, lower the lights, add music, subtract music. Just knowing they were part of a study seemed to help. Well, knowing that they were observed in that particular instance, they had to obviously demonstrate that they were doing their work and working hard. And so it wasn't that providing different levels of light was allowing them to work hard. It was just a simple act of being observed. That's, I think, related to this effect. But this is more, I think, of an internal process where I'm starting to observe myself and observing what are the factors that are keeping me up at night? You know, maybe I, I, and as I was even thinking about it, I'm like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be on my phone just before I try and go to bed, right? Because all that light is keeping me up. Maybe I should turn down my phone. So now I am paying attention to myself and adjusting my behavior and adjusting, you know, my, my habits to try and fix the problem that I'm having. And that in itself is almost as effective as going to an expert who says, you know, gives you a list of things. Maybe you should, you know, turn off your light at night, you know, try not to have stressful conversations before you go to bed. It's almost like if you pay attention to yourself, you can actually have a little bit of an intervention yourself. So just to review then, the, a placebo itself is, a, is the pill or the injection or the procedure or the surgery. And the placebo effect is when doing those things, even in the absence of an active ingredient, if it has an effect, that's the placebo effect. Yes. And you might be wondering, well, what's the placebo response? Because you might hear that term quite a bit. That's what we observe in a clinical trial. So in a clinical trial, people get randomized to a drug, an active ingredient, or basically an identical version, like a simu simulated version of that. So a pill, but this time the pill just has microcellulose or something in it, or a, a fake injection, or even a sham acupuncture needle. And your response in a clinical trial setting is called the placebo response. And the reason why there's that important distinction is because in a clinical trial, we're not studying placebo effects, we're studying the drug. So we're not really trying to isolate placebo effects. We're just putting everybody over here on this inert thing to compare it to the drug. So we're not just studying the placebo effects, we're studying a lot of other things in that arm. So it's just called to make it easy placebo response. And let's talk a little bit about the other factors that can be mistaken for a placebo effect. So things like the natural history of the disease. I, I, I mean, I think a very good example of that is, is depression. Most people's depressions are episodic. They come and go and they ebb and flow. And most people get better spont spontaneously, even without a drug. And so if, if someone goes into an antidepressant trial, when they're the most depressed, then there's a good chance that because of the natural history of the, of the disease, or if you can call it that, of the, or of the mood disorder, that they're likely to feel better almost regardless. And so that's a confounding variable that's not the placebo. Exactly. Um, and similar to that, if you were to do a clinical trial on a common cold, 
and you enroll people when they were sick, you're probably going to see a big effect in two weeks where everybody somehow gets better and you could get fooled that that's, you know, the effect of the drug you're testing or the placebo. Um, and that's just, like you said, the natural history, the natural course of that disease. Similarly, there's a concept um, that we observed uh, called regression to the mean. So people usually, if you're feeling fine, let's say you do suffer from depression, you're not going to necessarily go into a clinical trial when you're feeling fine. You go into the clinical trial when you're having the bouts of anxiety, when you're having the bouts of depression. And so we tend to see people, again, get better because they tend to go into the trial when they're at the, um, you know, the height of that of their symptoms. And so they tend, because of the episodic nature that you pointed to, they tend to get better. So what sorts of diseases or conditions are most affected by the placebo effect or placebo response? It looks to be mostly the subjective conditions, which is not to say you don't have a placebo response in every condition. It's more that you can readily observe placebo response in the placebo treatment arms of antidepressant trials, hypertension trial, anti-hypertensive medicines, anti-epileptic medicines. You can see it in um, some treatments for schizophrenia, certainly for irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, migraine. So there's a very long list of, of kind of functional syndromes where there's a big subjective the conditions tend to be subjective or reported by the patient. Things like like physical pain, depression, anxiety, and then physical physical ailments that have a stress related a strong stress related component. Exactly. So you could imagine though that um, if someone were to have a condition, and we certainly we've seen a lot of COVID recently, COVID nineteen or you know, which is an, is caused by a virus um, or cancer, um, you know, which is caused by this dysregulation of your cells, and you go into treatment, your body might try and mount, you, you know, your whole physiology might be trying to mount placebo response or have a placebo response, but it not, it's not going to get rid of the virus and it's not going to stop the cells from replicating. So infectious disease is one area where it's probably not so prominent? So, you know, whether it's a virus or a bacteria or, or also cancer, uh, th things that are where the cells are kind of acting more or less autonomously, it doesn't mean the placebo is, has zero effect because it might still help your immune system to some extent, but it's not going to be as direct and, and not, as, not as immediate. Exactly. And certainly not well quantified, so we don't really know. And I think what you, were, what you were getting at earlier is that the placebo effect is not just from a placebo pill. It can be from any kind of experience, really, or encounter with another person. If somebody suddenly gives you hope or you see somebody that you love that you hadn't seen in a long time, you're going to feel different. And that's, that's awfully hard to quantify. It is. And, you know, I think one of the, the fun and interesting challenges in placebo research is where are the boundaries, right? Where are the where does placebo stop and and hope, or or even with nocebos, worry, anxiety begin? And so we don't really fully understand that. You know where we could say, oh, that's placebo, and that's just hope. Okay, you, you just used the word nocebo, so I think we should uh, 
inform our listeners about what that what that means because that's not as familiar as placebo. Placebo meaning I will please, and I think the, the origination of that term is that doctors in the past didn't have that much to offer <laughs> except hope and comfort, and so they would prescribe bread pills, you know, and, and they, they please the patient because the patient wanted something. And whereas nocebo means I will harm. Exactly. And that really gets to whether or not side effects can be induced by telling the patient about the side effects. <laughs> it's so tricky. And, and, that, and we'll get into the ethics of this, I think, later in the interview. But, you know, you, you're supposed to give your patients informed consent. Well, informed consent means letting them know about the possible side effects of the drug. But if you tell them, you may actually induce them. I don't think there's a clear answer to that. Well, I think the piece that is missing and often missing is I'm going to tell you these side effects. And what happens when people know the side effects, sometimes they're more likely to experience them. You know, like giving people an, a way to understand that there's a possibility that the drug itself or the intervention itself is not causing the side effects, but the information is. Um, and this doesn't obviously work for everybody. There's some people who they just naturally look for the side effects. And we all know that when you start looking for things, you tend to find them. Yeah, especially the, the people who read the inserts in their in their medications, you know. Right. Yeah. Or I love when you watch a commercial and there's the, you know, there, there's all the happy images of the people who are suddenly feeling really great. And then there's this, you know, deep voice and fine print that's going really right. fast. Right. May result in well, death. Are still, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the, so there are people who, some people just see the happy faces, but some people don't even see the happy faces. They're reading the fine print. They're pausing their TV and they're reading that. Um, and they're hearing all the, the, the side effects and you know then dissuaded from using the drug. It's, it's a tough nut to crack. I'm not sure if there's a perfect answer to that. Well, there's also a way to do this. And there's a wonderful um, New England Journal paper by um, Luana Coloca that basically says, and, and this is, I think, common wisdom, you could tell somebody that 90% of people have no problem at all with this treatment. Or you can tell people that 10% get stomach ache, nausea, <laughs> itchiness, you know, like whatever it is. And so we can choose how we give information and we can frame information in ways that are less anxiety provoking than others. I'd like to ask about how we know for sure that placebo effects are real as opposed to just imagined. Um, so great question. And for years, I think placebos acquired significant amount of stigma because they were thought as being kind of in the domain of the imagination, just in your head. And it really, I think, wasn't until we started to get some physiological and neurological evidence that there are actually biological changes that are occurring when people are in the process of and when they respond to placebo treatment. And the early studies were done by people like Howard Fields, who showed that a drug that basically blocks opioid signaling called naloxone can also block people's ability to have a placebo response or have a placebo effect. And so that was 
you know, in the 70s, probably one of the first indications that placebo effects or the placebo response pathway must be using opioid signaling. Yeah, that's a fascinating study. It's really convincing. And it, as you say, it, it depends on, the, on people having opioid, natural opioid receptors. And that's why opioids work so well, <laughs> have such a strong effect anyway. And that you can actually block both the drug and the fake drug and the placebo. That's, that's really a remarkable thing. Yeah. And so fast forward to the 90s, they tried different drugs to block or enhance placebo responses and replicated the naloxone studies. And then by the time placebo neuroimaging started in the early 2000s, they knew what to look for. They could look at um, opioid signaling in the brain. And for that, they used um, radioactively labeled opioids. And so they could see kind of where, what regions of the brain were becoming activated um, when in people who responded to placebo. And so immediately, you know, placebos went from something that was just in your head to something that was in your brain. Which is also in your head, but it's a different, <laughs> Which is also in a, your different, head, right. different meaning yeah. of in your head. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned also about enhancing the placebo effect. That's really fascinating because I think we often think, at least those of us who think about placebos, that the placebo en maybe enhances the drug or mimics the drug, but the placebo effect could be the primary effect and the drug could enhance it, which is really crazy. I think it's actually crazy and also smart. Like what if for the last hundred years, we've been making drugs that boost placebo responses and what if something, and, I'm, and this is completely hypothetical, right? This is, not, this is not proven, but what if if you boost your placebo response too much you kind of cross into addiction, right? I mean, I think we, we don't know enough about how the brain works to know that if we kind of amp these pathways up, what will happen? And so I'm thinking that if you were to design the perfect placebogenic enhancing drug, you would want it to be mild and not to perturb all the delicate systems that are kind of in the brain, you know, I think uh, schizophrenia and Parkinson's and the dopamine stories are really a good example of that, where people with schizophrenia can have tardive dyskinesia or Parkinson's-like symptoms if given, if their if dopamine is too depleted um, and vice versa. So there is a delicate balance in our brain. So we really want to, before we kind of go amping things up, we want to be very careful. I mean, do we have examples of dangerous levels of placebo effect? I have heard anecdotally that people have gotten addicted to their placebo pills. It's hard to imagine that there are dangerous levels of placebo, but you could imagine that, and, and there's a wonderful book on this where people get cursed. This is the nocebo effect, right? So like, that, like voodoo. Yeah. Well, voodoo and, you know, and many different cultures have curses, right? I think every culture has a curse. And so people who, who are cursed or who know they're cursed now start to impute every bad thing that's happening to this curse. And now they start to get more and more stressed and, and go downhill. And, and, you know, depending on how bad things can get, they could be a really bad outcome. But the, I don't think beyond that, I've not heard that, you know, there are any extremely like chronic problems with 
with placebo pills. You know, it's interesting, the, the placebo effect, the, the word placebo is so um, pejorative in a way. It's like, oh, it's, it's just, as we were saying earlier, it's just a placebo. I, I wish there were a different word. I don't know if we could coin one right here, but <laughs> I mean, because it, it's really, it's really, uh, it's tapping into a really powerful form of social influence. Yeah, it is a very, very powerful form of social influence. And, you know, you could, you could probably argue, although it hasn't been shown, that placebo effects are seen in advertising campaigns or, and certainly as we talked about the ads where people, some people focus on the bright, happy story and some people focus on the fine print is an example of how information in the form of an advertisement can really skew or shape people's reactions or even willingness to, to try a treatment. I think many people have tried to come up with a better word. There's the meaning effect. There's the term absorption. There's the mind. There's the concept of mindset. So there have been many kind of iterations of this. Nothing has stuck like placebo. We're still stuck with that word. And that's probably because the the placebo effect is most noticeable and most studyable in drug development. You know, so that's it keeps going that way. You know, there's a kind of irony that you know, the, the name of the program, um, program in placebo studies and the therapeutic encounter uh, sounds in a way that, you know, you have your chemical efficacy of, of your medical interventions, and then you have the placebo components, which can include things like the, the manner of the physician, how well connected they are, to the, they are to the patient, how comfortable they make the patient feel, how hopeful they make them feel. And all this is, is very subtle social interaction that is not easily boiled down to neurobiology. I mean, I mean, presumably everything is neurobiology, but you really wouldn't even try to study it because it would be way too complex. And yet, I, I imagine a lot of the funding for that program is drug companies trying to isolate the, the neurology of the placebo effect so they can eliminate it in their drug studies. Control, the word is control. Yeah, control, yeah. Well, control, just parcel out that effect and, and have the drug effect uh, shine through more clearly. And it seems to, it's kind of, you know, one of those things that the more you study it, the more ephemeral it becomes. And certainly, you know, I've seen, I've gone to conferences and seen amazing talks where a pharma company will take the placebo response in the past five years and crunch every variable that they can find and come up with this like amazingly significant based on the previous data algorithm that says that you want to you want to run your trial for this many weeks and you want to give it in this form your drug in this form and and you want to um, tell your patients this and they have it all they test it in the data and it's like validated they'd go out and they do it placebo response beats them wow <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And, and of course, drug companies also change the size and shape and color of their of the pill that they manufacture to try to enhance the placebo component, because once the drug is approved, especially, they want it to have as robust an effect as possible. So red pills are usually more activating. Blue pills are usually more calming, but apparently not in Italy, because that, blue is the color of the soccer team there. <laughs> it's, and then you have, you know, these really subtle kinds of studies where things don't turn out, they turn out the opposite of as expected. So there, there was a study of uh, sleep medications with MIT students. I don't know if you've heard about this one. 
and um, then they were asked to report back in the morning. One group got the sleep aid placebo and the other got a stimulant placebo. And they came back in the morning and naturally most people take about 20 minutes to fall asleep. And the ones that thought they had taken a stimulant didn't worry about it. Oh, it's just the drug keeping me up. And the one that, that the ones that took the, the placebo sleep aid said, I can't fall asleep. Even with the sleep aid, this is terrible. What's wrong with me? <laughs> so it doesn't always go as predicted. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's so and we're 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 not all the same, and I think that's one of the things that's often missed in clinical trials, right? Is that basically averaging two hundred people over here who've taken a drug and two hundred people over here who've taken a placebo, and on average, you want to see if the the um, the drug is is better than placebo, but within that hundred or two hundred people are people who are so different, who've heard different information. Some of them have gone on the internet and found that the drug that they're, the trial they're in had an amazing first run, um, that it had great results. And this drug is like, this is a new thing for this indication. And now they're like, just gonna get really better, but they were on the placebo. And so I think it's so hard to control all the different factors because we are just so diverse and when we do these post hoc analyses to try and figure out what happened, then we've lost the kind of magic and power of a randomized clinical trial because we haven't randomized the people. Um, and so we're, we're quote unquote cherry picking at the end. And so it's, it's kind of, and nobody, by the way, wants to look at a trial after it's over. It's, if, they, if it failed, it failed. There's no more money to put into that. It's failed. It's over. There's, a, I imagine, a lot of motivation to try to game the system. I know in the past, drug companies were able to cherry pick their studies. You know, they do six studies and the three that showed a, an advantage for the drug over placebo, those are the ones they'd submit to the FDA and the other ones they would hide. <laughs> Apparently, in the past, in the past not that's not anymore. allowed anymore. Yeah. You know, I was also wondering about the question about whether the patients who feel better, let's say it's an antidepressant, and the ones who feel better on the placebo, is there any difference in the way they feel better versus the way someone on antidepressant feels better, or they just both feel better? That's a study right there. That's a very interesting question. And what would also be interesting to know if for a given individual, do they feel a different better on the drug than on the placebo? I think that'd be really great. I mean, I know personally for me, I don't do well with meds, so I tend to feel nauseous if I take a real drug, but Granted, I don't know what I would feel like if I took a placebo. That could all have been conditioning. <laughs> then there's another concept about additive effects that I think in most cases the assumption is that the drug effect, you know, the chemical effect gets added to the placebo effect or vice versa, and that they're not uh, producing the same thing and overlapping and not increasing each other's effects. So it does seem to be additive. I think this is, uh, comes out of studies on pain relief. And uh, it seems like it's really clear that when the patient knows that they're taking the drug, as opposed to it being administered in an, an IV without them being told, it works way better. In some cases, it does. the drug doesn't work at all unless they know. Right. Yeah. Uh, these are incredible studies in which they blinded the patient or the, the subject to the pain relieving um, medication and they still have the pain unless they see it going in or they believe that they saw it. So seeing a placebo go in is at times almost equivalent to not seeing a pain 
an actual active drug like morphine or fentanyl going. And so that's the power of our brains to kind of override what the body is experiencing with what it believes is is happening. Yeah, I've even heard of studies where a patient can be given a an emetic, a, a drug that makes them vomit, but if they're told that it's an anti-emetic, it will have the effect of an anti-emetic. That's amazing. So, <laughs> so with these kind of things that has a lot of subjective components to it, it's it can be amazing. Yeah. You know, so I'm wondering with with FDA studies, a drug has to be more effective than placebo to win FDA approval, and that's the way it's supposed to work anyway. How much more effective? Is it just a statistical difference, or does it have to be a meaningful clinical difference? And I know that Irvin Kirsch talks about that in The Emperor's New Drugs, that in his view, once you uh, compile all the studies, including the ones that were shelved originally for, for Prozac, for instance, that the, the difference is, is really minimal. It's not really a clinically significant difference, but it is a statistical difference. It's such an interesting question, right? There's so much to that question. So first, yes, it's often, I think in a majority of studies, it's a statistically significant difference. And that is a number that 0.05 p-value is agreed on ahead of time. So for instance, it's so controlled, right? So if you decide that you your trial is a one-year trial, but at six months you want to take a look, you actually agree that you're going to modify your p-value based on your look. The, the kind of um, reliance on significant statistical significance is very interesting, and I think to some extent important. However, the clinical significance is also important. And what's interesting, though, is it's very hard to know what one person's, you know, one point on a... Um, the Ham D score, the Hamilton D score, which is, for instance, the scoring system that you use to evaluate um, levels of depression. What one point is to one person might be the equivalent of three points to another person, right? Right, because it's not a physiological measure. Right. It's a subjective measure. You know, the same with pain scales. Okay, tell me your pain on a scale from one to 10. Yeah. And I might perceive, you know, a 0.05 difference and be really happy that 0.05 difference, whatever that means. These things average out though, don't they? But that's the thing. Everybody's in, it's all people in the, in, you know, averaging out is, is one thing, but you have individuals in those averages. And so, you know, we throw out a drug, right? That is not clinically significant. And it could be that, it could easily be that half the people benefited and half of the people did not benefit or, or got worse and you average those out, and that half the benefit did get nothing, right? And and this is not new. This is not about just the drugs. This is also about the placebos, where if you look back at the early, early studies in the late 1700s, where they were looking at the um, mesmerism, um, which was this belief by Franz Mesmer that he could convey through animal magnetism this force, this magnetic force that could heal someone. There were reports of significant benefits to people, right? Similarly with John Haygarth at the turn of the century, early 1800s, he tested the Perkins tractors, which were very popular in Europe and showed that actually, even though Perkins tractors were supposed to work by some galvanic electromagnetic, you know, hand wavy response, the wooden tractors worked just as well. But neither of these people then went on to give people 
metal or wooden tractors or fake or or real mesmerists. They got nothing. And that's the problem is that, you know, people are in pain. People are depressed. People need something. So I think we really need to pay attention to this problem and, and put some deep thought into it that isn't simply randomized trial, fail, throw out. It's very complicated to sort of eliminate drugs because they can't separate from placebo. And it gets even more complicated because Urban Kirsch and others have pointed out that the double-blind study may not be so blind after all because the placebo arm or getting a sugar pill and it's not mimicking the side effects. It's not an active placebo it's, that Im imitates the side effects of the drug. And many people can tell if they're on the drug or not. And if you know you're on the drug because you're getting side effects, then the placebo effect is of, of the placebo component is going to be stronger for people who really know they're on the drug than people who are not, unsure of whether they're on the drug. And, and for that matter, I think uh, it makes sense that the placebo components of drugs are more powerful in the clinical situation than in the double blind situation because double blind, even if you don't break blind, you, you know that you only have half, half a chance of getting the drug. And so you're not gonna, your expectations are gonna be dampened a bit. You're hopeful that you're on the drug, but you don't know. It's really complicated. It's complicated and, and incredibly, I think, interesting. <laughs> and, you know, I think Irving Kirsch makes a really interesting point um, that it's these side effects that tip the patient off or, or makes them think that they're on the drug and therefore have the perception that they're getting better. You know, I think he's done a couple of studies to demonstrate that that actually might be true. And so where does that leave us? Should we be, should we be trying to, you know, put emetics <laughs> in, 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 um, in placebos and treat people with those and tell them? Yeah, probably. One thing that I found in talking about placebos, and you know, I've done presentations, I talked to, you know, other psychologists about it, and I talked to friends and family. Most people don't want to know, <laughs> is what I find. I mean, very few people really want to know. They, they don't want to have cold water thrown in what they think is a powerful medicine. And I don't know what to do about that. People like Irving Kirsch believe that it makes sense to rock the boat because some boats deserve to be sunk. But I, I, as a psychologist, that's hard to do. You know, so I, I don't want to people, for people to lose hope you know, in, in something that, that gives them hope. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that it's important to treat the patient, you know, and I think as wide as we can make our arsenal, um, as long as it doesn't do harm to the patient. And that's where I draw the line, you know, is the harm. And some people might argue, and certainly if you look at the history of quacks and nostrums and patent medicine, um, there was a lot of harm in, in some of the drugs that they were giving people or the, the tonics and the... Um, the tinctures that they were giving people, but some of them were harmless and seemed to have benefited people like the Perkins tractors. And so the harm comes to the pocketbook and people take offense to that. And I can understand that too, because some people, you know, can't afford these treatments. And so I think the FDA is in their right to kind of protect the consumer patient, um, both, both their person and their pocketbook. I wonder if we could take a little tangent into the FDA here. I know the FDA is supposed to be this objective institution that's in, in, ensuring both the safety and efficacy of drugs. 
but I've also read that half of the members of the FDA panels are made up of former drug executives. So, you know, there's some conflicts of interest. Um, but we also find that they're, they're susceptible to lobbying influences, not just from drug companies, but from patient advocacy groups too. So we have a, the recent um, 2021 drug for Alzheimer's, aducatumab. There was a near unanimous advisory panel that said this doesn't work. And yet the drug got approved anyway. And I think one of the reasons was that patients need hope. There's, there haven't been any advances in such a long time that need something. Part of it is this huge profits to be made in something like a drug like that. But also, I think patient advocacy groups want something. And anecdotal information seems to hold greater power than statistical information for most people. So I think you said two things there, um, which I might argue were oppositional, but let's see. So you said that the FDA has, you kind of talked about the constitution of the FDA, but also the impact of um, patient advocates on this particular drug. And so the FDA, I think, came actually found that they, they would not approve it. Um, and it was the patient advocates that really, really kind of pounded the door. And so I think that would probably suggest that I mean, how can you not listen to the patient, right? You know, I think it would have been, it's, what is, it's like, it's it, it's been 30 years since they haven't had a drug and they certainly don't have an effective drug for Alzheimer's. And here's something that had a glimmer of hope. And, and this one did show harm in some situations. And so I think that one needs to be very careful with just saying, okay, we have nothing, so maybe we can approve this. Um, because if you say we have nothing, maybe we can approve this, then the next thing is as long as it doesn't cause any harm. But then I think the next thing has to be as long as you're not going to charge a lot for it because you have no evidence that it works. There's also reason to hesitate because it's giving false hope. And the, the false hope is to the relatives of the patient with the Alzheimer's because the, it turns out that placebo effects don't work very well with people with advanced dementia because from what I've, my understanding is that the placebo effect requires a kind of cerebral uh, cortex, you know, the forebrain to have this sort of top-down effect on, on the neural processing. And that breaks down. So for instance, pain meds are not as effective in older patients, uh, particularly the ones with dementia. And, and, and there's been some ethical guidelines that they should get higher doses because the placebo component is not gonna be there. Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, this is complicated stuff, right? And this is real life, and this is people's families. And Ted Kapchuk coined the term placebo by proxy, um, which is the, the parent having the placebo effect on behalf of the child, unbeknownst to them. Right, so things like stimulants. You know, stimulants, stimulants affect the uh, perceptions of the teacher and the parent. You know, I think this is tough stuff. You know, this is tough stuff, and it's hard to... To, to have a strong opinion in the face of people suffering. Um, I think, again, I think when you have nothing, I think you have to err on the side of safety and on the side of, of not harming people's, you know, livelihoods or, or ability to take care of themselves. But the last thing you want to see is, you know, somebody going into debt for something that is not going to have an effect on them. So, like I said, it's complicated. So speaking of complicated, what, let's talk a little bit about the ethics of placebos. 
I think the AMA would frown upon a doctor who just gives a placebo and to a patient without identifying it as such and saying, take this, you know, your headaches will go away. And I think the reason, the reasoning is that when patients find out that they're just getting a sugar pill, it will undermine trust in the profession. So I think it's pretty clearly kind of forbidden, but I understand that 50% of doctors do it anyway, because sometimes they have nothing else to do. Right. I mean, again, like you said, this is complicated, but there's some really key points here. So the first point is that the belief is that if you get told that it's a placebo, it's not going to work. And if you think about it, think about that very statement, right? That is likely because of the belief around placebos. Placebos are not supposed to work. But if you get told that in a majority of clinical trials in your condition, and let's say it's IBS or something, 40% up to seven, 30 to up to 70% of people respond to a placebo. That is a different thing than saying, I'm giving you a sugar pill. I'm saying you, I'm giving you a sugar pill that has been shown to work in 30%, 30 to 70% of people. It might work for you. We don't know. Let's give it a try. That is a very different piece of information to program somebody with or to give to somebody because it allows them to kind of reevaluate their symptoms in the context of this new inert or active. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of this idea of open placebos. I, I have some cartoons that shows a, a, a patient in a pharmacy aisle looking at the placebo section, and they, they're trying to choose between placebo and extra strength placebo. You know, I, I think that's something, um, I, wouldn't just say, I wouldn't use the word troubling, but I tend to be a little skeptical about how many people would actually be persuaded by this, particularly because we live in a culture where chemistry and neurology and biology are seen as so powerful compared to anything else, you know, compared to interpersonal encounters, uh, compared to conversation, you know, even though it's probably not true, you know, depending on the situation. But we, we give primacy to neurology. I mean, the, the placebo effect is suddenly real because you can see neurological mechanisms behind it. And before that, it wasn't real. Now it's real. But, you know, I wouldn't undermine the power of a conversation, right? Because, you know, we can have a friendly conversation, you know, on the radio. Or if somebody comes, is pounding at your door right now and saying, you know, you need to get out. There's a fire, right? Get out, get out. Like, what's going to happen to you physiologically? Your heart rate is going to go through the roof, I'm, I'm assuming. You're going to start to sweat and feel like prickly feelings in your skin. Your pupils will probably dilate and you'll have this huge adrenaline rush. And you'll be able to, if there was a fire, like leap out the building and, and run, you know. Um, and that is a couple of words that completely changed your physiology. And that, that's the power of, of, just gives you a sense of the power of what placebos can kind of tap into or something akin to a placebo, in that case, it's a, let's say a real fire. But if, you, if, it, were, if right. it were a fake right. fire, then yeah. you have all the fight or flight response followed by intense anger at the practical joke, <laughs> which is also a fight yeah. or flight response. <laughs> exactly. So I have a, a, a weird proposal. I've only thought of this as I was preparing for this interview. Uh, I'm wondering, is it wise to require that the drug be superior to the placebo 
in situations where you're trying to mitigate pain, whether physical pain or psychological distress. I mean, that seems to be what we're supposed to do. And yet we have drugs that really it's questionable as to how much better they are than the placebo, if at all. On the other hand, a lot of people get benefit from them. Would it make sense for things that don't involve infection or cancer or things, you know, really serious physiological problems? Would it make sense to say, we don't need you to separate from placebo anymore. We just want it to know that it's effective and safe. I think that firstly, I do think there are a lot of good painkillers and a, good, a lot of good studies on pain for pain, let's say. So, you know, something like even aspirin, ibuprofen, there's a lot of good data that says they do separate from placebos. And so I think where, where there are drugs that already have been shown to separate from placebos, I think to some extent, you have to keep that, like, hold that bar. I don't think it's fair to have other drugs come in that, that may or may not work for you. You may or may not have a placebo. I think that's too amorphous and, and, and hard to really kind of control. But there are conditions where there are no effective drugs. I think that when there's no effective drug, known effective drug, and there are things that are safe, then I think now we're in a different place. And which is kind of the imperative that the early physicians had, right? They didn't have anything to give the patient. And so they gave them a bread pill, which might have been effective, but they knew it was very safe. So I think only in situations where you have nothing, that that's the space to entertain the, the potential of placebos to be effective. Of course, we have uh, alternative and complementary medicine, which don't go through clinical trials, because clinical trials are extraordinarily expensive. And you also find not just with alternative medicines, but also older medications that are repurposed for a new use. They're generic, so there's no drug company is going to bother to study them. So, you know, for instance, propranolol, which is a beta blocker, uh, a blood pressure medication that very commonly is taken by people who do public speaking or musical performance, that you take it as needed. I don't know that there's actual double-blind studies behind that. I think that's that's a, a use post uh, going off patent. I mean, I think that that's the problem with many drugs that were kind of developed, you know, 20 years ago, is that nowadays, if they went into a clinical trial where, you know, they might do the clinical trial in multiple countries because of cost or because of having a difficulty recruit patients, there's some countries that are renowned for their placebo response rates. So for instance, for whatever reason, Brazil and Russia, for instance, often have higher placebo response rates than say Germany. You do care to speculate on that. <laughs> who, who knows, right? Nobody's really done the study, but certainly we kind of have done the studies where people will shell out the uh, pharmaceuticals, shell out the money, do these, you know, do trials in three different sites. And, and be scratching their heads at the end of it because the drug like was amazing here and here the placebo was amazing. Uh, you know, what on earth can this be? And what are you going to do? <laughs> are we going to an Aricept uh, presentation and the drug, it's an Alzheimer's drug, an older one. It was 10 times more effective in the American sample than the European sample. And, you know, my, my cynical assumption <laughs> was that in the American sample, they were able to somehow cherry pick the patients better or control the um, outcomes in some way. I, I mean, I, I, it struck me as nefarious, but you're saying, no, it's maybe the, the Europeans are, are savvier in some way. 
Well, no, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there's so many factors and I could list you right now like 12 factors that could cause these differences. So it could be from in Brazil, people don't have a lot of access to medical care. So getting into a clinical trial, now they're going to finally go see the doctor. That's going to feel good right there. There are differences in kind of the the patient profile. So some patients in some countries might tend to be more healthier or less less sick. There might be, um, you know, differences in altitude. Your blood pressures are different. I mean, there's so many factors that can go into it. So at the end of the day, it's very hard to control all these different factors in now you have these two different populations and these two very different results and you promised the FDA you're going to put it all together and now you just average everything out and you have kind of nothing. And then when you have, you know, psychiatric categories, uh, different cultures categorize um, mental illness differently. So depression doesn't mean the same thing here as it meant in Japan before Prozac anyway. Prozac didn't sell at first in Japan because depression meant a really serious clinical depression where you can't get out of bed were in the US, it's a much broader category. So they had to, they had to remarket the uh, Prozac to not being for depression, but being for a leak in your vital energy and your ki. Uh, same as chi, it's ki in Japanese. And then it started to sell. And so did it sell over the counter then, or did it sell? A... I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that, but it's, it started to, the market share got much bigger after that. That's amazing. Yeah. Any uh, any last thoughts before we uh, before we end? You know, I think that I really became concerned as I read the kind of the history of placebos and up and right came right up into modern times that that we need to really think about this as a backdoor, right? A backdoor that, as in hacker terminology, can be hacked to to make us better, to help us feel better. And that's the case with the placebo effect. Mm-hmm or to make us feel worse or avoid getting a treatment because we have a fear of a side effect and that's the nocebo version of this and so this this you know this kind of placebo effect or nocebo effect is really pivotal and vital to our personal health and to our public health and i really believe that it's kind of the work of us all to protect promote and preserve <laughs> the um to safeguard you know this back door so that we don't have people getting, you know, false information and not taking um, a statin, we're not getting a vaccine because they've heard information that's not necessarily true. So they they stay away from from a drug or a treatment that could really benefit them or save their lives even. Yeah, well, I, I like everything you said except for the uh, metaphor of the back door. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's uh, relegating it. It's sort of like the, you know, just a placebo. <laughs> Oh no, not at all. Uh, in um, in hacker terms, you look for the back door and you hack it. That's how you get into the system. That's not just a placebo. That's getting access to the mainframe and, and messing the person up. Yeah, no, not not that kind of back door. Not the Paul Simon back door. <laughs> okay, I guess I'm, I'm not familiar enough with hacker uh, terminology then. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Delving. It's been really a pleasure. Uh, Catherine Hall, a researcher at Harvard Medical School's program in placebo studies and the recent author of Placebos, uh, part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. So thank you again for coming on to Delving In. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, 
originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace. <laughs>